This is episode 155 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Ashley O'Rourke. She joined the MUSC Evelyn Trammell Institute for Voice and Swallowing in September 2012. Dr. O'Rourke began her professional career as an SLP, earning her master's degree in speech language pathology and audiology from Florida State University. After more than seven years of clinical speech therapy practice at Emory University Hospital, she attended medical school at the Medical College of Georgia. She completed her residency in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and her fellowship in laryngology, voice and swallowing disorders at the Medical College of Georgia. Dr. O'Rourke treats adult patients with problems located in the larynx, airway, and or the esophagus. This includes hoarseness or voice disturbances, dysphagia, or breathing difficulties due to airway narrowing or scar. She is particularly interested in the diagnosis and treatment of swallowing disorders, as well as laryngopharyngeal reflux disease. Her research interests include innovative technologies for the diagnosis and rehabilitation of swallowing disorders. Dr. O'Rourke is board certified through the American Board of Otolaryngology and serves as a senior examiner for the board. She is a counselor on the board of directors for the Dysphagia Research Society and holds the Mark and Evelyn Trammell Endowed Chair in Otolaryngology. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Ashley. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. All right. So tell the people who you are. My name is Ashley O'Rourke. I am a laryngologist at the Medical University of South Carolina. And I was a former speech language pathologist. I don't like to say former because I still consider myself a speech pathologist, but uh, I just don't have my C's. So I'm not technically a speech pathologist anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's what I'd love to hear about. You know, I, I know people always love to hear about the interesting career paths that people mm-hmm. take. And it's so fascinating to hear that you started out as a speech pathologist. But, you know, instead of leaving the field, because I think people are, you know, sometimes like, maybe I want to do something different with my life. You actually went deeper, which I think is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I am. Um, I did. I'm late bloomer, I guess you could say. That's it. I had uh, my child at 43, so I'm definitely a late bloomer there, and married my husband at 40. So you can you can see that I'm I'm kind of patient with my uh, life path, I guess you could say. Um, either that, or it just took me longer to like develop the proper brain cells to that's okay <laughs> to get things in line. Um, but sure, so I benefited from having a very good mentor, which I feel like in my career, especially that I have appreciated that over the years. And 
I know that can sound sometimes a little, you know, passe to say, you know, that we all, you know, benefit from that. But I feel like in my life, potentially, there have been some very critical moments in my life where mentors have stepped in and, and have really played a huge role um, in shaping my professional career. And so if I don't know, you know, my career path uh, is is a little different than most. And, and so I think it's it's interesting for speech pathologists, particularly, I get asked a lot about my um, how, how I got to where I am. Um, and, and we can certainly talk about that because I, I think if, if my story can help anybody make decisions, either <laughs> avoid decisions or, or make them unhappy. But, but I think if anyone listening to this gets out of, gets anything out of this, it would, it would be to really pay attention to those opportunities in your career to be able to identify mentors that can help you, but also to think critically about your career in ways that if you have people that are not good mentors, that, that you seek alternative um, uh, individuals out. Or if it's not the right career path to, for you, you know, life is just too short. Um, and uh, so you either need to uh, make other decisions that, that make you happy and fulfill you because having a uh, fulfilling career, you know, as you know, and being successful um, in your own right is, is, is an amazing uh, part of, of can be an amazing part of your life. Not the only part of your life, of course, but uh, it, but it can it can be very fulfilling. So um, I was uh, I come from a family of engineers. So every one of my family is an engineer. My father owned a heavy um, or ran a uh, heavy industrial engineering firm, and um, so I was on the engineering career path and was you know sitting in calc 2 thinking oh my gosh we're rotating washers in space like what am i doing um and i just knew it wasn't for me um, but i'd never considered a medical career but i don't know some of your listeners may know my cousin uh, roxanne diaz gross oh how um, funny yeah she is my uh, first cousin and uh, we, we are very close and she she's my aunt's uh, daughter and uh so i was in uh college and just kind of floundering a little bit with well what i was what i was going to do was i went to florida state university and i ended up going to visit roxanne and i remember it being the winter because i asked her why all the trees were dead um because i'm from florida so we don't have deciduous trees there yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible city in pittsburgh but you guys have no, no leaves on your trees so uh i i visited her and she was working at the time at the university of pittsburgh as a medical speech pathologist and um, I uh, spent, uh, I can't remember how long I was there, but for an extended amount of time and actually went to work with her and shadowed her. And by the end of my uh, visit, I seriously considered speech language pathology as a career choice for me and uh, switched over my major and then um, graduated a bachelor's degree and a um, master's degree from Florida State University in um, audiology and speech pathology. Awesome. Uh, dual dual degrees and so i never i don't think would have made that decision had it not been for roxanne and, and of course she has a personal relationship with me but i think it was also her professional mentorship on you know really listening to whether i was happy or not happy and then giving me some advice and also introducing me to other people and exposing me to other possibilities within the field so she has remained a um, significant mentor for me particularly with my introduction to the dysphagia research society which i'm now um, uh, on the board of directors and and uh really active and in, in think that's an exceptional uh, society but she has really remained a lifelong mentor for me professionally as well cool. my career <laughs> yeah oh that's so interesting that's yeah. so 
So talk a little bit. So, so kind of what populations did you work in when you were, you know, first starting your career? And so um, I worked at Emory University Hospitals. And I worked at the, um, the main campus there at that time, uh, the Voice and Swallowing Center that some of you may know uh, was not in the Midtown. That was Crawford Long University um, at the time. Uh, sorry, Crawford Long Hospital at the time. And um, so I worked in mainly acute care, uh, sorry, acute rehabilitation um, on, the, um, on the traumatic brain injury unit then, on the neuro, basically neurogenic unit, mainly TBI, but some stroke. And then I also did, um, over at the main hospital, did um, the video fluoroscopic swallow studies on uh, acute and uh, rehabilitation patients. Um, and, and did some acute care, although uh, mainly it was a lot of acute rehab and then uh, dysphagia. I loved it. I mean, I enjoyed speech pathology um, immensely and still do. It was definitely not a career choice to leave speech pathology. It was to go on and, and like you had said um, before, to build upon that. And I feel like I took the world's longest career path ever <laughs> to, to kind of just continue building on it. But it's... Um, it has been a lifelong learning process for me, and, and I, I, all of those experiences with those patients, I still look back to some of those early days as a speech pathologist and things that I was learning and still use them today. Yeah. And so definitely a, a big a benefit to my career. Yeah. This point now. Was there, was there like a, a tipping point that was like, oh, I, I'm definitely going to go back to med school? Or was it just like kind of a constant nagging of, I want to know more, I want to know more? I think it was um, the first couple of years were, I, I didn't even think about it. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't as, you know, I was, I, I remember distinctly as a CFY thinking, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? And I remember having these moments where I'm like, I know nothing. And that, that panic that sometimes sets in where you're like, I need to educate myself. So that's always been in situations where I, I feel that, that feeling of unease. And, and I get that, that kind of start of like, oh, gosh, what am I doing? My, my go-to has always been to educate myself to learn as much as I can, to seek out people who know. And so that's what I did my first few years as a CFY and as, a, as an early speech-language pathologist, just learning. Um, I was very active in the Georgia Speech-Language and Hearing Association at the time. I served as their vice president for external affairs. And um, so was, was just with some remarkable speech-language pathologists um, at the time. And so I was doing a lot of reading and studying and, and, and some dabbling in research. And so about three or four years into my career, it was like, well, you know what? I need to, I, I need something more. I want to do something more. I've kind of gone through that like initial phase of reading and, and all those types of activities. And now I was like, well, I'm, I'm kind of, what's going to be next? And so I actually couldn't decide between a PhD in speech language pathology and going back to medical school. And I took the GRE. I went back and studied for the GRE because it had been a little while. And I went back and I actually took the GRE um, as well as preparing for the MCAT at the same time because I, I just wasn't 100% sure and I was leaving those avenues open. And um, even toyed around with a little bit, I went back to do my post-baccalaureate work. It had been long enough that I had not, I needed to repeat some coursework to be a candidate for medical school. And um, also, it had been so long since I'd had physics and other things like that that there was no way I was going to be able to, to take the MCAT. Um, so I went back and did some post-baccalaureate work at Georgia State University 
and loved organic chemistry and actually toyed with the idea a little bit of um, becoming an organic chemist and just couldn't see myself kind of working in pharmaceuticals and those kinds of things, but really enjoyed it. And so there wasn't really like this aha moment of, of what I was going to do. I just that nagging of there's going to be something more. And I wanted to keep myself kind of going. And so I, I started dabbling in, in some classes and some other things. And um, someone said something to me and they were, they were like, Ashley, you know, you're the one who's always in there getting your hands dirty. You know, I was the one who, you know, wanted to do the laryngoscopy, who was doing fees when it was you know, first coming out. Because, you know, when we're talking about, I, went, I started college in 1989 and uh, graduated in 93. Um, and so this was like the early, mid-90s that I was starting my career. And, um, and so I, I was always changed, wanted to change out the traits and, and would go to like the, the, the board um, at the hospital and get special privileges to be able to do trait changes and, and do, you know, suctioning and respiratory therapy kinds of stuff and to be able to do fees and always in Botox clinically and wanting to, you know, do stuff. And so they're like, you know, you might want to really think about kind of being clinical. So I, I thought about physiatry because I had a very strong interest in dysphagia and I knew that I wanted to do something with dysphagia. And so um, I just decided, you know what, medical school is, is for me. I loved school. Medical school was it's fantastic. I mean, <laughs> so there's like, what? I loved medical school. I loved learning and I loved classes and I loved reading. And, and so um, it, was, it was a gradual thing. I always knew there was going to be something next. I just didn't know kind of what it was. Um, it turned out to be medical school for me. When I got into medical school, I'll, I'll remember the the day I told the physiatrist who was head of our rehab unit, and he said, well, I'm either going to say congratulations or condolences. <laughs> was, oh, my goodness. So that's, that's kind of how I started my, uh, my career in medicine. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I love that you went, you went back, Ashley, to be honest, because I, I don't know who I, I was talking to somebody like a few months ago. I just always wanted to go back and pe- get my PhD. And who knows if I ever will. But somebody was like, why don't you go to med school? And I was like, well, because I thought like that window was closed. And they're like, well, no, you can always go back to med school. And then I was talking to somebody else. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'll go back to med school someday. And they said, no, you, you have to go like right from grad school. You can't like no one goes back. And I was like, oh, I thought people did. (laughs) I went back. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So I'm glad you did. (laughs) Awesome. So I'd love to hear about, you know, what, what you do now as a, as a laryngologist, you know, is there, yeah. What, what really you're specializing in and yeah. So when I went back to medical school, I did, I didn't know hundred percent that I was going to be an otolaryngologist. I, um, I thought maybe, but it was a surgical subspecialty. It is a surgical subspecialty. And I never really th- said, I wasn't one of those people and less people who are, but I wasn't ever like, I'm going to be a surgeon. Like that never entered my consciousness. I thought maybe I might be a vet when I was younger, you know, something, but I never thought of, of being a surgeon. So I, I wasn't, I wanted to explore my options. And, and then I thought physiatry. I also really enjoyed pediatrics and thought maybe pediatrics. And you have to remember that it's, it's a long career path. It really is because I did undergrad and graduate school, of course, then work. And then I did almost two years of post-baccalaureate work, four years of medical school, six years of residency because I did a year of research and then a year of fellowship. So by the time I graduated, I was older and, and I went back, uh, I started going back to post-baccalaureate when I was about 26. And so it was a very, and I was 40 when I graduated fellowship. So it was a very long road. 
if I didn't have the thought of that, I had a goal in mind, I, I think it would have been harder. But serendipity has it. And this is one of those places where I'll say again, like, you know, talking about Roxanne being my first mentor for speech pathology. When I was a, um, a first-year medical student, I had been in um, uh, I had been in the city for about a week. And I was at a buffet. Um, like a salad buffet, which now we don't have anymore. I know. Stage, right? <laughs> um, but I was at the salad buffet. And all of a sudden, somebody from across the buffet looked down underneath the buffet and said, Ashley O'Rourke. And it was a really good friend of mine from high school who I had not seen in since graduating high school. I think we kept in touch like our first year of college. He had gone to Emory University and I was at Florida State. So we didn't really connect after that. And he was a, um, a third or fourth year ENT resident. And so it just was serendipity. He was like, you know, here you are. And we started to reconnect. And he had a lovely wife who was a pediatrician and a couple of children. And, and they lived very close to where I lived. And, and we started to, um, you know, reconnect. And he was like, you have to come scrub into surgery. You have to get on this, this um, my first research um, project and my first paper was that it was because you know his mentorship and, and including me in those kinds of things and giving me opportunities and so I, I really think that uh, that that opened the door and then I met Chris Warren who is now at Johns Hopkins and she it, it was an attending at, at the time at Medical um, College of Georgia and um, she became a very great mentor of mine um, really furthering women in in medicine and in laryngology in particular and um, and started to work with her and um, and just uh, really enjoyed it and kind of became a part as a medical student of, of the laryngology team there and felt like this was natural. And then also opened my eyes to all of the things a, a laryngologist uh, could do uh, as well. So uh, that that was a tipping point for me. And, and ever since my first year of medical school, then it was I was going to be a laryngology from then on. And then that's where laryngology came in, into play for me um, of, of learning about the specialty of laryngology. And so when I was ready to apply for my residency, it was always with the thought that I would go on to complete a, a laryngology fellowship. And, uh, and so that's kind of how I, I fell into laryngology. Awesome. Um, now I've forgotten your question. <laughs> no, no, I just, just love hearing. Yeah, no, that's fine. I just love hearing about the whole, the whole career path and, you know, really, so, so really my question was what exactly are you specializing now? And I yeah, you've so done some webinars teaching. So let's, so let's go forward here. So, okay. so then, um, so right now, so I'm at the medical university of South Carolina some really exciting uh, changes here. We are actually starting construction in um, November of our new Voice and Swallowing Center. Oh, That's going to be in Mount Pleasant, which is kind of like Charleston, greater area. And so I specialize in laryngology and the whole breadth of laryngology. So I do, um, so I, a lot of people think I do dysphagia especially we'll talk about high resolution pharyngeal manometry. People think that's all I do all day long. I, it's not. I do... Um, I do airway surgery. So I do, I, I really specialize in endoscopic management of airway, but also open airway too. Um, so um, surgical interventions for um, airway disorders, uh, particularly uh, one of the things that I really enjoy working with, it's extremely challenging, but it's posterior glottic stenosis. So I do um, um, some work with that. We just uh, 
taped a podcast uh, for that for the American Academy of Otolaryngology and also then voice disorders and um, in, enjoy doing that like thi open thyroplasties, um, other um, office-based procedures, injectables. And then, but dysphagia is one of the, the things I think really sets my practice apart from others is that we are, have a comprehensive uh, swallowing. Um, and so I am so lucky to be surrounded by speech language pathologists who are amazingly um, uh, brilliant. And uh, we are able to provide evaluation and management for swallowing disorders. We do our own video fluoroscopic swallow studies. So I can do those in, in our clinic with a speech pathologist. Um, and I serve as the radiologist for those. And now our physician's assistant um, does those as well. And so we can, you know, do those. Um, we, we do schedule them um, in the week, but we also are, have the ability to be able to add, add things on. If needed, we do transnasal esophagoscopy. We do pharyngeal and esophageal high-resolution pharyngeal manometry. We do impedance pH testing. We do all those kinds of procedures. And then I also do surgical intervention for uh, dysphagia as well. Um, things like, uh, you know, Zinker's diverticulum and endoscopic management, as well as some open procedures and like hyoids, uh, laryngo hyoid suspensions and, and things like that. One of the reasons that I came to Medical University of South Carolina, it's a fantastic um, program. I mean, it really is. And we're 13th um, ranked uh, nationally this year for our laryngology department. But it's the people here that, that make it um, amazing. But Bonnie Martin-Harris was here at the time um, and uh, really had a heavy hand in recruiting me to, to NUSC and has been and remains one of my mentors um, and, and has really helped me to shape my career. Um, and so she's one of the main reasons that I actually came to NUSC. Un unfortunately, unfortunately, now she's at Northwestern and, and of course, is an associate dean there, but we're, we're still close and, and keep in contact and, and um, uh, share resources. And, and she was instrumental in uh, creating the Market Level and Trammel Endowed Chair, uh, which was endowed to me this year. And she was instrumental in, 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 in making that a possibility for me which is just an amazing uh, kind of uh, honor that, that not a lot of people get. Those are very, very difficult to come by. And so that, that has opened a lot of avenues uh, for me to be able to further the mission of, of Evelyn Trammell um, Institute for Voice and Swallowing. And, uh, and so that's, that's what we do. But, but Bonnie being there and being a mentor for me shaped my ability to create the clinic that I have and create the opportunities that we have to help patients. Awesome. Um, in comprehensive uh, dysphagia management. Awesome. That's so fascinating. Thank you. Awesome. We, I, it's, we have fun. We have a lot of fun in clinic. We really do. We're always looking for new things. And, and, um, and, and luckily, you get to a point in your career where, you know, companies will contact you and say, hey, you want to try this out? And, and we beta test software now. And, and we um, pioneered, actually, high-resolution parental manometry. So yes. I did not invent manometry. I did not invent parental manometry. And there are a lot of super smart people around the world smarter than me. Uh, I can think of about 20-something people off the top of my head uh, with manometry. But I have really had the opportunity to collaborate with them um, and um, lead a high-resolution parental manometry working group that has international representation and we just published last year a protocol looking at the metrics and parameters that, that researchers who are using pharyngeal manometry uh, pressure testing 
of the pharynx um, in regards to evaluation of pharyngeal swallowing uh, that, that we should be um, uh, capturing so that we can talk in a universal language um, and compare apples to apples when we're looking at different research uh, studies. And so we, we have we have a lot of fun in clinic and, and we, we really try to help people and we're a very cohesive group um, and we uh, meet at rounds uh, weekly and discuss patients and look at video fluoroscopy studies and, and really it's very collaborative with the speech pathologist for sure. Awesome. It is not a separate kind of thing. I'm still right in there looking at video fluoroscopy all, every week and, and you know and, and talking about those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, let, let me ask you actually, this is my own my own knowledge that I'm looking for here. I don't I don't know the answer to this. Do you um I've just heard things that now, you know, manometry is making such waves in our field that mm-hmm. we have video fluoroscopy, we have fees, and now manometry might be this third missing piece that if, you know, each patient could get all three of this all three of these tests together, it would just be the most comprehensive test we could do for dysphagia. Is yeah. that kind of how you see manometry fitting into this or do you have a different view of it or? No, I do. And I, I think it's an adjuvant test. It's not a standalone test. Uh, it's kind of akin to, uh, you know, I do a lot of esophagology, uh, which is one of the areas where I think speech pathology is ripe to, to forward into. And, and we, we do, and, and a lot of people around the country, there's been a real groundswell about, about uh, esophageal dysphagia. And, and so I, I am an esophagologist in that way and do um, treat disorders related to that. And so for the esophagus, there have been studies that have shown and clinically we all believe that there are four examinations that you can have to diagnose esophageal disorders. And those are radiographic, so the barium swallow and esophagram has a place there, you know, really great for anatomic detail, et cetera. Then um, you have the EGD or esophagoscopy, and that's great for mucosal detail, but it doesn't give you the same type of information functionally that an esophagram would give you. Um, you know, although people have tried to look at like clearances and things like that, it just doesn't give you the same it doesn't give you the same information. And then you have um, high-resolution manometry. So that, that can categorize your motility disorders that your esophagram can identify. Oh, maybe there is a stasis problem or maybe there's some motility issue, but, but your manometry can categorize it. And then you have pH testing. So that can tell you whether acid um, and, and clearance, like in, if you use impedance with it, and clearance of bolus, clearance of just stasis, not, not necessarily bolus and swallowing, um, plays into a part into that functionality. So I think if you think of that, we have four tests for a muscular tube, all right? We have four examinations that we use to get an overall picture of esophageal dysphagia and esophageal disorders. And then we look at the pharynx, which is much more complex in a lot of ways, right? Shares an airway um, issue. It has, you know, uh, laryngohyoid mechanics that are at play, pharyngeal constrictors, it's got the, the, you know, cricopharyngeal pharyngoesophageal segment, UAS issues, and, and then tongue, and then we have the pharyngeal. And so if you think about all of that complexity compared to the esophagus, which, which has some complexity to it, but, but I would argue pharyngeal swallowing has some higher stakes. And then we say, okay, well, now we have video frost, we can just get a modified variant swallow, and then that'll tell us if they aspirate or if they penetrate, and that's the end of the story. And, um, you know, speech pathologists know that's not, but I, I don't know that all practitioners do. And so I think you're right in that we need to have a more comprehensive assessment. And that is not going to be 
just one study. And so for some patients, maybe maybe a video fluoroscopic study is fine, um, but for others, they may need manometry as well, pressure testing and and, and to look at some of those mechanics from that perspective, Um, and they may need a fees. And so I, I think that if we don't engage in those type of adjuvant testing, then we're not going to know what we don't know. And one of the areas I think for pharyngeal manometry that's that's exciting is looking at pharyngeal swallowing from a fluid dynamic standpoint. So looking at it from a pressure gradient type of, of mentality where it's not just this muscular peristalsis that's happening it is, or gravity. It's actually the setup of some of our uh, pressure um, gradients and creating uh, this flow that, that can happen. And, and, and that perhaps the disruption of that is what gives us the, the issues with bolostasis or other things. It's not the only thing, but I, I think it's a very interesting aspect for us to start to look at and explains why some people get better with some of the interventions that we use that aren't necessarily directed just at uh, pharyngeal strengthening or coordination. Um, so I, I think it's a, I think that it definitely has a place. One of the areas though, that is exciting with pharyngeal manometry is its use as a biofeedback tool. And uh, one of my um, partners, uh, Kate Davidson, formerly Kate Humphreys, um, and, and is now, and uh, she and I have done a lot of work with biofeedback um, with using pharyngeal manometry and have seen some really great strides that patients have made using that. It, again, is not a one-size-fits-all. Every person is not going not to be an appropriate candidate or benefit from pharyngeal manometry, but there certainly are certain populations that, that it's very useful for. And, um, and so we're, we use it clinically a lot. I mean, we, uh, every week we, we have patients that we identify that, that I mean, go pharyngeal manometry is a biofeedback tool and, and it has really helped uh, to improve their therapeutic outcomes. Awesome. Can you give any, can you think of any specific examples, Ashley? I would just love for people to hear, you know, kind of what, when this tool might be mm-hmm. best used or. Sure. Um, one of the areas that we have found very beneficial is um, post-ACDF. Oh. Um, so anterior cervical spine surgery patients, actually a large proportion of anterior cervical spine um, discectomy infusion, so it's ACDF. A lot of those ACDF patients do develop post-operative uh, dysphagia. However, the vast majority of them resolve within at least one to two months. But it's those patients who, after a couple of months, are still having some significant dysphagia that we have found from a diagnostic standpoint, as well as from a therapeutic standpoint, that they really do benefit. And I think one of the problems is, is that if you think about how that injury occurs, it's usually a retraction injury type problem. And so we're looking at either um, neuromuscular, uh, those kind of neuromuscular traction forces that cause either neuropraxis or are causing actually muscle muscular injury. And so a lot of those patients end up with deficits in sensation and so we've had cases where there have been patients who have been very diligent. They have had great speech pathologists and um, they are doing their exercises for months and they're still, you know, in PO and a peg and, and you have some that are on, on modified diets. And when we bring them in and we do pharyngeal manometry and we ask them to do a Mendelssohn, we ask them to do effable swallow, and then we actually see what they're doing they're not really hitting that target exercise. They, they 
thought they were doing a Mendelssohn maneuver. They thought they were having an effortful swallow, but they actually weren't able to feel what they were doing. So externally, they were kind of trying to copy what the speech pathologist was um, saying to them, but they had no way of internalizing that. I don't know about you. It's extremely difficult for me to tell if somebody's doing an effortful swallow or, you know, and I am the world's worst Mendelssohn producer. I, 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 I cannot, I, I have had monotony done many times. I have trouble producing a Mendelssohn, but if I have manometric feedback, I can actually produce one. But how do you know? How do you know I didn't just raise my layers, drop it down and then come back up? I mean, you can feel, um, it's not practical to teach some of these things under, under video fluoroscopy, but having that feedback as a clinician, and a patient, because we teach patients, you know, about what, what the pressure plots mean and, and what their target pattern is. They learn it very quickly. Engineers seem to get it like super quick um, and, and do really well with it. But uh, it, it gives them that external biofeedback that they need in a pattern that makes sense. And um, it, it can be really beneficial for those folks. Also, they have the added benefit that since they have sensory deficits, they tolerate the catheter extremely well, too. So we have smaller catheters that we use that, are much, that, that aren't the same as the esophageal catheter. So we use smaller catheters that are more flexible and, and um, much better tolerated by patients for an extended period of time. Because we're talking 30 minutes to 45 minutes with a catheter in place. Um, but they do really well. I also found it really, so that's therapeutically. I also found it really beneficial for patients who have um, some subtle defects. So we've had patients who find their way to us because we're a, a swallowing center that they find their way to us because they've had, you know, three modified barren swallows, everything's normal, you know, or they have this globus sensation, they have this and, and, and they, nothing, nobody can find anything. And, and we have used manometry in some of those patients to really tease out some subtle defects in like tongue-based strength that, that just have a real trouble seeing with your eye or UES um, in coordination with pharyngeal mechanics, um, which is really hard for the eye to see milliseconds on a video fluoroscopic swallow study. I mean, I don't, I can't see 700 milliseconds. And so, but, but with, with manometry, you can, you can glean all that quantitative information um, and then marry it with your qualitative information and, and really get a whole picture. Um, one of the mantras that we have is that to make progress, you're going to need some targeted therapeutics. But to have those targeted therapeutics, you have to have the appropriate diagnostics. So if you just shotgun, you know, the therapeutics where you're just going to give them, you know, every single, you know, exercise and pensary strategy you can think of, people aren't going to get better. Some of them are going to get worse. And, uh, but if you, if you have the appropriate diagnostics, you can make a, an appropriate therapeutic plan that's going to further the patient's um, uh, recovery. And, and we use manometry to do that. So we are quite passionate about it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, but, but it's not our only tool. It, I do want to have that caveat. There is not, we don't surround manometry all day long. <laughs> we have plenty of other tools and things that, that, that we do. But, uh, but I think in the appropriate patient, it can be invaluable. Yeah. I think what I think find is so fascinating is I feel like I got a good, like, I doused in it a few years ago when I was like, well, this is amazing. Like, this is going to be the next big thing. And I feel like it hasn't really caught on. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I thought no, we'd see a lot more of it. I thought yeah. a lot more people would be doing it. I thought it would, you know, be part of our toolbox by now. And I, I'm kind of disappointed that it hasn't. Yeah, there are some barriers and people like me who, who have the opportunity to access manometry, um, access is a, is a huge barrier. You know, we're just, we're lucky that I work in an academic center and have, you know, received grants and other things where 
we can have multiple our own standalone systems with multiple catheters and and, and you know be able to look at different software platforms around Mary or um, equipment manufacturers are married to one. And um, so access has certainly uh, been an issue. And we have diligently worked with um, manufacturers in, in trying to further their interest. When we talk about technologies like this for dysphagia, you know, some people get a little squeamish about partnering with industry because it's, it's kind of like seen as something a little shadowy and maybe a little nefarious in some ways. But, but in actuality, if you just practically think about it, there's no way to further technology than to partner with industry. Mm-hmm. And we have to do that in a, in a, um, in a very uh, reputable way. And we have to have it be very clear, you know, what the ground rules are. But, but companies are also very clear with that too. Industry has a lot of rules and, and we have to have our own equipoise and our own, and our own ethics as well in dealing uh, with industry and partnering with them. But there, there's no other way to do it. And so it, it's, it's, it is a collaborative relationship that can really help patients. And if we don't take advantage of that, we're disservicing our patients. So one of the um, you know, partnerships that we've had was to work with Medtronic early on, uh, Kate uh, um, Davidson and I did, um, in, in trying to you know, further the access for speech pathologists with, you know, more, more, um, with uh, more cost-effective um, catheters with more cost-effective equipment, with more portable equipment, et cetera. And then now also I'm happy um, that um, Labory, who was formerly um, or is kind of owned by, uh, Labory owns um, medical measurement systems and um, MMS and is uh, very interested in furthering pharyngeal manometry and is incorporating pharyngeal metrics into their esophageal um, uh, software system so that it will, you would be able to uh, capture and analyze both pharyngeal as well as esophageal swallows within the same study. So you don't have to separate those out, which, which goes along with what, are, what so many of us are, are kind of beating on the drum about the continuum of swallowing. Why are we artificially separating out the pharynx and the esophagus? And so with, um, you know, with video fluoroscopy, a lot of speech pathologists, gastroenterologists, radiologists, et cetera, are, are kind of talking about this, this continuum and, and how, how we're looking at esophageal follow through and, and um, you know, can we come up with a standardization of, you know, what we're going to look for in the esophagus and, and make it part of the swallow study, not just an, after, not just an afterthought. Um, and the same thing goes for esophageal manometry. We need to start getting uh, pharynx up. And um, unfortunately, our meeting in Ascona uh, this year uh, for the pharyngeal manometry, you know, international group that, you know, the, the society and the group of people that, that came up with the Chicago classification are very interested in now including the pharynx in some of, of that. But uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to go to Ascona and have that meeting. So hopefully those things will continue to further. But there are definitely people who in the world that are looking at this and are trying to bring it out of the out of the research labs and into the clinical practice and make that more accessible. And my hope is that it will become more and more accessible uh, to speech pathologists. And uh, we just have to be able to kind of educate and uh, give people access to that. Yeah. I love everything about what you said. I think I, I especially love what you said about, you know, partnering with industry people. I've, I just put on a conference this weekend and we did bring in some vendors and their talks were some of the most 
well-appreciated talks because they were just so knowledgeable about different areas. And I think it was the perfect marriage of they're so knowledgeable about their product, but they also were so familiar with the research Mm -hmm. that to us, it was it was awesome because it was a lot of research that we, you know, as practicing clinicians may not have heard about or didn't know was out there. And, mm-hmm. and I, I really like what you said, because I think it can be such a beautiful, you know, marriage mm-hmm. <laughs> of sorts. But exactly. Anyways. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, yeah. and I'm curious to hear too, you know, I think I've heard of some people that think that speech pathologist should have a role in doing like transnasal esophagoscopy and doing more of this esophageal stuff. And there's some people that say, absolutely not. That's not within our scope of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love, you know, what you're saying that that really is something that should be more in our toolbox. Yeah, I think esophagology, knowledge of the esophagus and knowledge of esophageal dysphagia definitely is is one of the, the areas where speech pathologists can broaden their education um, knowledge. You know, it's, it's been a while since I've gone through my program. So, you know, I had very little dysphagia, much less as I mean, I don't think anybody ever said the word esophagus while I was in my master's program. <laughs> I never heard it. Um, so I, it may have changed now and hopefully it is changing and there's more educational opportunities. You know, you get into that trickiness when we start to talk about specifics, like yeah. who should be doing esophagoscopies, who should be doing, you know, then you got to think of risks versus benefits versus, and, and then also now you're talking about access to another, you know, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand um, dollar tools and things like that. But, but I think that, Definitely the knowledge of it and then knowing the appropriateness of referral patterns, uh, like referrals, who, who should this person see, where, who's the person that can best help this person um, is, is just, is, is paramount. I, I feel that our speech pathologists do esophageal manometry and can read esophageal manometry. Those are, of course, overread by the physician from an esophageal standpoint, just because the things like achalasia and other, other such things uh, that nature. But, but I think there's, in the appropriate situations with the right support systems, I think a lot of those things are possible. I love that. Thank you so much, Ashley. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to cover? I don't think so. That's a lot. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I love kind of the term we took here, but I love it. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I knew I had to operate today. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you so much. That was such, such wonderful information. I just oh, love your story. And well, thank yeah. you. I, I, I love sharing it. You know, I'm, I, I get asked a lot about my career path in, in at least once or twice a year, I have a speech pathologist that reaches out to me Yeah. and I tell them, this was the right choice for me. It was a long and hard road. I am not going to sugarcoat it for you. There were moments where a lot of moments and a lot of time that I was like, what did I do? Um, I loved speech pathology. I would have been very happy and fulfilled being a speech pathologist, uh, either as a clinical speech pathologist or, or research or, or anything like that. And um, so there's nothing wrong with not pursuing it either. I can see a lot of benefit in not, in, not, in not pursuing it and still having a fulfilling career. So I, I also don't want people to think that it's the only career path that can be fulfilling because there is so much that a clinical speech pathologist can do to touch people's lives and patients and, and be, be a, a fantastic force in people's lives and, and very successful just as, just as, as much as myself.
it was a long road. I gave up a lot of things. I gave up a lot personally. I gave up a lot financially. And a lot of people ask me, they're like, well, are, are you are you satisfied? Absolutely. I love where I am. I love my job. I love my career. I have a, a very happy home life, but I don't think I'd do it again. <laughs> I, if knowing now what I knew then, um, I, I think I might've made a different choice, um, but I would, I, I have absolutely no regrets. And, and I'm so happy and, and, and I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm in the position I'm in and I've had the mentors that have allowed me to be where I am. So I, I'm happy to encourage other people and you can definitely do it if I can, you 100% can. Um, but, but if you decide not to, that's okay. And, um, and but seek out those mentors and seek out those opportunities that will make you have a fulfilling career no matter what it is. It doesn't have to be exactly like mine. Awesome. Thank you for your honesty, Ashley. You're welcome. Super helpful. You're welcome. Well, this has just been great. I've enjoyed enjoyed sharing a little bit. It's a nice refreshing instead of citing literature. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.